Amen. All right. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to the book of Colossians, chapter 1, find verse 15. Uh, We're three weeks into uh, a series through the book of Colossians, verse by verse, focusing on the supremacy of Christ. And you've already heard that message clearly this morning in our worship, in our scripture reading. Now, you may remember from week one that we define the supremacy of Christ as the, the truth that Jesus is above all, that he is in all, and that he holds all things together. And the reason that we defined the supremacy of Christ in that way is primarily because uh, the passage of Scripture that we're going to be reading today, today's passage holds our foundational verse for this entire series, Colossians 1, 15 through 23. This passage stands as one of the most important, most foundational passages in the Bible regarding the nature of and the divinity and the authority of Christ Jesus. As I said before, without this foundational belief that Christ is above all, it's impossible for you and I to build a biblical faith and worldview. And so today's message is an important message, especially if you've never come to a point in your life where you have fully surrendered to Christ and placed him above all all in every area of your life. And if you haven't done that this morning, you're going to have at least one more opportunity to do that today at the end of our service. Now, up to this point in the letter to the Colossians, Paul has been praying for the Colossians and his prayer has focused on God's redemptive plan for them. But in these next few verses, Paul shifts his attention from the will of the father to the work of the Son. And so in these verses, Paul answers four important questions for us, okay, in relation to God. Uh, who, who, uh, who is Jesus in relation to God? Who is Jesus in relation to creation? Who is Jesus in relation to the church? And who is Jesus in relation to salvation? So let's jump in, Colossians 1. I'm going to begin by reading only the first part of verse 15. It says this, the Son is the image of the invisible God. Now, what does that mean? Who is Jesus in relation to God? So let's start with that word invisible. That's an interesting word. The Bible tells us that God is spirit. We see that in passages like 1 Timothy 6, 16. It says, he alone can never die and he lives in light so brilliant that no human can approach him. No human eye has ever seen him nor ever will. All honor and power to him forever. Amen. So question, anyone here ever looked face to face at God? Anybody? No, I didn't think so. No one, because if any of us looked into the face of God in in all of his glory, we would die. We know that because God said that to Moses in Exodus 33 when he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live, meaning the full glory of God. So God, yes, is invisible to us, cannot be seen by the human eye. However, Paul tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In other words, when Jesus came, the invisible God became visible. Or as one young, uh, young boy put it, Jesus was God with skin on so that we could see him, right? So we could have fellowship with him. Jesus is the image of God. Now, what does that word image mean? Okay, image means a copy or or an exact representation. 
In in New Testament times, that word image referred to the, the images that were stamped on ancient coins, usually the face of the reigning king or the reigning emperor. Today, we still do that. We still have images stamped on our coins. For instance, if you want to know what Abraham Lincoln probably looked like, you can look on a penny because his face is stamped on the penny. In the same way, if you want to know what God looks like, we only have to look as far as Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint or stamp of his nature. And so this first question that Paul answers, who who is Jesus in relation to God? If you're taking notes, write this down. Jesus is the perfect reflection and revelation of God. That's who Jesus is. Let's move on. The second part of verse 15 through 17. This is a key passage, as I said, for this series and a key passage for the supremacy of Christ. So this one you're going to want to remember. He, Jesus, is the firstborn over creation, for by him all things were created, in him and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together." That this is truly one of the strongest, most staggering statements about the divinity or the divine nature of Jesus Christ found anywhere in the Bible, particularly regarding his relationship to creation. It's here that we learn that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Now, the false teachers in the Colossian church had a wrong view of creation. They actually taught that all matter was evil, okay? Whether it was the material world or or the human body, everything was evil. But the Bible teaches that God's creation is good in that Jesus is the firstborn over that creation, okay? That, That phrase, firstborn over all creation, does not mean that Jesus was the first created being. Does not mean that. That's still a false teaching in some religions today. But the word for firstborn here, it does not mean one who was born first. What it means, what it refers to is one who has the right of inheritance. One who has the right of inheritance. We see this language a lot in the Old Testament as it, as it talks about the firstborn male, the one who has the right to the birthright. The word firstborn was used as a title for the coming Messiah who would rule over the world and guess what? Inherit the kingdom of God. Psalm 89, 27 says, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And so the phrase firstborn over creation does not mean that Christ was the first created being. Rather, it means Christ superiority over all creation, that he is the ruler and the heir of all things. And one of the strongest pieces of evidence of this is found in John 1, 1 through 3. It says, in the beginning was the word, capital W, another word for Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And all things were made through Jesus. 
Okay, so if all things were made through Jesus, and, and if without him nothing was made that was made, then he cannot be a part of the all things that were made. He, he cannot be a created being himself because the word tells us that Christ is before all things, that he created all things, and that he rules over all things, both in the physical world and the spiritual world. So if that's true, we must trust and believe in his supremacy. Without this core belief that Jesus is above all things, our Christian faith becomes hollow. Our worship becomes misdirected. Jesus must be exalted above all things in this world and in our personal life. He must be first place in our worship. You see, Jesus wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just a good teacher. He is the Lord of all creation. He's in a class by himself. There are no competitors. There are no rivals. There are no other gods. He is Lord of Lords, King of Kings. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the, 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 premin, the preeminent one. And there is no one above him or beside him. He is supreme over all forevermore. That's who Jesus is. And so Paul answers this second question. Who is Jesus in relation to creation? Write this down. Jesus is the Lord of all creation. And so he's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over creation. And then verse 18, Paul answers the third question of who Jesus is in relation to you, the church. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. That word preeminent is another word for supremacy. So having established Jesus's supremacy over physical creation, now Paul seeks to proclaim Jesus's headship over spiritual creation, which is the church. And so get this down if you're taking notes. Jesus is the source and authority of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. I'm not, I'm not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. He is the over shepherd. I, our elders, our other pastors serve as under shepherds, under the one who is the source and the authority of the church. The church is the body of Christ. Jesus is the one who is the authority or the head of that body. Okay, that means that there is a living relationship between Christ and his church. Just as there is a living relationship or living connection between our own minds and our own bodies. You see, our, our head or, or our brain is the central command center for our entire body. We cannot talk, we cannot walk, we cannot even breathe unless there is a functional and living connection between our head, our brain, and the rest of our body. In the same way, Paul affirms that Jesus is the source from which the body of Christ, that's you, the church, derives its life, its sustenance, and its growth. If the church becomes detached from the headship of Jesus Christ and his word, the church will cease to have life and authority. Jack Wellman said this, Jesus is the head of the church. He expects his body to cooperate. Jesus is the source of the church. 
But this passage tells us that he's also the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. What does that mean? This does not necessarily mean that that he was the first to be raised from the dead. As a matter of fact, Elijah and Elisha both raised people from the dead in the Old Testament. Rather, once again, this phrase points to the supremacy of Jesus Christ, that that his resurrection was the basis for all other resurrections that would come afterward. In other words, because Jesus rose from the dead, you and I one day can, be rose, can, can rise from the dead in Christ. We find the same teaching expressed in a slightly different way in 1 Corinthians 15, where Jesus is described as the first fruits rather than the firstborn. Let me read it for you. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now, you know this at harvest time, the first fruit or, or the first collection of one's crops or produce was an, was an indication of what was yet to come. In the same way, Jesus's resurrection was an indication or first fruits that all followers of Christ would one day be raised from the dead. Therefore, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, but he's also the firstborn among the dead. He is supreme over physical creation. He is supreme over spiritual creation. And so because of that, Christ is the source and the authority over his body, the believers of Christ, the church. And so thus far, we've seen that Jesus is the perfect reflection of God. He is the Lord over all creation, and he is the source and authority of the church. And now perhaps the most important question that Paul answers, who is Jesus in relation to salvation? Let's look at verses 19 and 20. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The final question of Christ's supremacy moves from the person and position of Jesus Christ and to his redemptive work. Verse 19, Paul uses a unique phrase to describe Christ, the fullness of God. The fullness of God means Christ is fully human and Christ as fully divine. In other words, Jesus has always been God and will always be God. When we have Christ, we have all of God. Jesus said in John 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You see, Jesus was called Emmanuel. That was one of his names. Do you remember what that means? God with us. God was pleased to live in Christ and be revealed to us through Christ. But here's the important thing. Not only did Christ reveal the Father to us, but Christ also reconciled us to the Father. Just as all things were created through Christ, all things must be reconciled through Christ. And it's only through his blood, the blood of Jesus, that the price of our redemption can be paid. 1 Peter 1.18 
You've already seen this today. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the, from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. Christ shed his blood on the cross to satisfy God's wrath toward our sin, to purchase our forgiveness and to secure our peace that we might be reconciled along with all creation back to the Father. That, reveal, that reveals who Jesus is in relation to creation. I mean, in relation to salvation, write this down. Jesus is the savior of the cross. He's the savior of the cross. He was the sacrificial lamb, the ransom from heaven the propitiation for our sins. But here's the thing, Christ's sacrificial death, his resurrection and his peace are only applied by grace to those who receive him by faith. In the last few verses of our passage today, Paul tells us who we were before Christ and what happens after Christ's sacrifice is applied to our life. Let's look at this together. Verse 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds before Christ. Verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is essentially the gospel message. We were all once alienated from God. Literally, we were enemies of God. In our minds and in our actions and in our heart, that's who we all were before Christ. But through Christ's death, we have been reconciled. In other words, God removed the barrier of the penalty of our sins. He, he overcame the gap between our sinfulness and his holiness. He melted our heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh. Through Christ, God turned us from enemies into friends. And that's the reason that we can live for Christ now because he died for us then. And once we accept Christ's free gift of salvation and live our lives for his glory, not our own, we gain the promise that one day Jesus will present us holy and blameless before the Father. Can you imagine that you and I will be presented by Jesus to our heavenly Father not as pretty good, not as they did a good job. They did the best they could. We will be presented as holy and blameless before our Father. Colossians 2, 13 through 14, a great passage. We'll study this in a few weeks, but a good passage to close on. You were dead. You were dead because of your sins. And because your sinful nature was not yet cut away, then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record 
of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. I love that. You see, only the supremacy of Christ could do that. Only the power of the gospel could do that for you and for me. You know, all throughout our nation, there are, there are monuments dedicated to the brave men and women of our military who laid down their life for our freedom. And if you've ever seen one of these monuments, they have hundreds, I mean, sometimes even thousands, tens of thousands of names on them of the men and women who died to ensure our freedom. It's literally too, too many names to remember. But Jesus, the captain of our faith, he met the enemy at the battleground of Calvary. And there he single-handedly defeated death, the grave, and hell so that we would only have to memorize and remember one name, the name of Jesus, the name above all names, the only name under heaven given men by which we must be saved. He is the perfect reflection and revelation of God. He is the Lord of all creation. He is the head and the authority of the church. He is the savior of the cross who died for you and for me. Do you know his name? Do you know his name? And I don't mean just his name. I mean, do you know the Savior who embodies that name? Is Christ supreme in every area of your life? Is he above all? Some of you are going through some, some challenges, a season of life where there's lots of worry, there's lots of concern. But as, as difficult as that is, is Christ still supreme over your life, over your situation, over this chapter, over this season? Do you, do you know that? That he is still supreme over that? That what you're going through doesn't surprise him, it didn't catch him off guard, it wasn't something he didn't see coming? Not only did he see it coming, but he's gonna use it. He's gonna use it to strengthen you. He's gonna use it to empower himself, power, empower you through himself. He's gonna use it to take you deeper into your faith. You see, that's what the supremacy of Christ can do, take a terrible situation, a, a situation that's, that's full of struggle and uncertainty, and he can use that. And he can, he can make good come out of that because he is supreme, he's over us. He's over that thing. He is above that thing. Is Christ supreme in your life? Have you surrendered to him, made him the savior of your life, and put him above all things? If not, would you do that today? Would you do that today? Would you just surrender to him? Give Christ first place in your life above all things received his free gift of salvation, received his redemption in full.
Church, I want to ask you if you will just bow your heads with me for just a moment.